danger is stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 316 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Baltimore, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. This is going to be a solo episode. It's a little bit less my fault this time than it is sometimes. Uh, we did have a guest lined up and it ended up falling through at the last minute, uh, but I did want to get you guys something since uh, there haven't been a lot of new episodes recently, which I apologize for, and that has largely been my fault. But um, yeah, so this is going to be a, a solo episode, a strategy-focused episode, and also a preview of the book that I've been working on, which uh, the working title is Play Optimal Poker 2, Play Optimaler. And Play Optimaler started as a joke, but I haven't thought of a better subtitle yet, so uh, it's getting closer and closer to being the real subtitle with every day that passes. Uh, I'm hoping to have that book available in May, a little bit earlier than um, than the original Play Optimal Poker was available last year, which it actually came out the very beginning of June, which I was hoping to kind of have it all wrapped up before I started in with World Series of Poker stuff, and I ended up missing a few uh, events that I would have otherwise played because I was kind of uh, scrambling to get the book out. So I'm on a, a better timeline. The more of the book is... is um, finished by this point in the in the process than where I was this time 2019 with the original Play Optimal Poker. It's also a big help that I have a better idea of what the full process is going to look like. So when I was writing the original Play Optimal Poker, I knew how to write. Um, I mean, I still didn't, I'd never written anything this long before, and there's there's some work involved in that, but a lot of what I didn't fully appreciate was coming was the um, doing the layout and doing some other things you have to do when you're self-publishing. Amazon makes it pretty easy, but there were still some things I had to learn about how to format a document in Word, and you tend to sort of round these things to zero in your head, and they're very much not zero. I mean, <laughs> entire days were dedicated to uh, doing things things like adding headers and footers to pages and making sure those were right. And honestly, the book still didn't come out looking quite as nice as I would have liked. Um, so I want that process to be a little less rushed this time along, but I also have a better idea of what that process is going to look like and how much time I need to allow for it and also what I can be doing along the way um, you know, while, I'm, while I'm drafting the book already, you know, things that I can be doing related to formatting that I think will make the work at the end a little bit easier. So it's a long-winded way of saying that I hope to have the sequel to Play Optimal Poker available in uh, May 2020, hopefully early or mid-May 2020, but that's roughly the timeline that we are looking at. Uh, the draft is pretty far along. Um, I've got about 40,000 words drafted, um, which is, I think the book could be anywhere from 50 to 80,000 words, depending. Um, so I, yeah, it's a little hard to say how much more I'll uh, end up needing to write, definitely some more, and then there'll be substantial revision process. But it feels good to have it well underway and to have an organizing principle for the book. Um, I felt like with play, well, there's a couple things. So with the original Play Optimal Poker, 
one of the big pieces of feedback that I got, um, a lot of people, so many people did like the toy games. I think there was also a subset of people who still found the book too theoretical, which my entire intent with the book was to try to present game theory in a way that was not overly theoretical, but I still think a lot of people um, struggled with thinking in terms of toy games. So uh, the, this this newer book, there's a lot more real holding examples. There's really only one toy game in in Play Optimal Poker 2. But that's also because this book is focusing a lot more on early street play. Um, play Optimal Poker, I talked a lot about polarized and condensed ranges, which are applicable mostly on the river. I mean, to some extent, those concepts are relevant on, on earlier streets, but those of you who have read the book or are familiar with the terminology will know a polarized range technically is a range that consists of uh, extremely strong hands or extremely weak hands with nothing in between. And it's rare that you have extremely strong or extremely weak hands on early streets and hold them, especially before the flop, right? It, you know, there, there's no hand. It's pretty rare that you're in a situation where you're more than like an 80% favorite preflop, which is, of course, very good. I mean, it's, it's nice to be an 80% favorite, but it's not nearly the same as, as being a 100% favorite. And the other thing is when you're in early streets, you have to consider more than just whether your hand is like currently strong or medium or weak, but you have to consider board coverage. You have to consider that you're going to want to have strong and weak hands on later streets, uh, no matter how the board runs out. So there's a lot of things that go into um, putting together your ranges on early streets and, and playing in a balanced way on early streets. It's not just about getting a bluff to value ratio correct. I think a lot of um, a lot of people's understanding of game theory, honestly, my own included, until somewhat recently was too based on just thinking in terms of like bluff to value uh, ratios. And that's partly a kind of a, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail problem, where because the like minimum defense frequency and uh, optimal bluff to value ratios when you're betting a polarized range, because that stuff is relatively easy to calculate and to solve, it's very tempting to think always in terms of those problems um, or to, to always frame things in that way. And thinking in terms of board coverage and what it really means to have like a balanced flop betting range or a balanced flop checking range is much, much, much more complicated. And it's really only with the advent of modern solvers that we've been able to get a, a good look at what those look like. But by studying solver outputs, we can start to get a better sense of what are the principles that underlie um, game theoretically optimal play on early streets and even if we can't perfectly replicate those solver outputs which we as humans cannot what we can do is try to extract some heuristics or principles that we can use to inform our own range construction process in real time so where i'm going with all this is this book is going to focus a lot on the, uh, the the process of of range construction what does it mean to think in terms of range construction and that's also what we're going to talk about in today's episode i do want to mention since we're talking about strategy that uh, our strategy segment is brought to you by tournament poker edge tournament poker edge has been a great partner to the thinking poker podcast from the very beginning uh, we are grateful to them for that and we encourage you to continue to seek out 
high-quality poker tournament strategy content at www.tournamentpokeredge.com. You may not hear ads for them on the show anymore, but I'll still be making videos for them, and they'll still be putting out that great content, and you should continue to uh, subscribe to that great content. Um, It's going to continue to be there for a long time, and I do want to thank them once again for all the support that they've given the podcast over the years. I'm going to start this strategy discussion, actually, before I get into the hand. um, I want to read some quotes from an article that I wrote for 2 Plus 2 magazine. Um, I don't know how many people read that anymore, but I've been writing for them for a very long time. (laughs) Um, Published well over 100 articles with them. And this piece is from the December 2019 magazine. Or sorry, this is from the January 2020 magazine. So this is a a quite recent piece that I wrote about um, constructing ranges and what it means to think in terms of uh, playing a a range rather than playing a hand. To play your range means more than just thinking broadly about how you might play different types of hands. It requires actively deciding how you would play each hand you could plausibly hold given the action thus far, and dividing your range into appropriately sized and balanced sub-ranges for, e.g., betting and checking. Many players put the cart before the horse by first deciding how they want to play their hand, and then justifying that choice by identifying different types of hands that they could play the same way. For example, a player bets the flop and turn with a draw that does not come in on the river. He decides to bluff on the grounds that he would play many strong hands the same way. The problem with such analysis is that, because it is not specific to our hero's cards, it would justify bluffing with all weak hands that the hero could hold in this situation. While it's possible he has enough strong hands to support such a wide bluffing range, that would be no more than a happy coincidence. Nothing about his thought process establishes this. In all likelihood, he will end up with an overly weak betting range. So what, the common objection goes. If the villain is unfamiliar with the hero, does not have thousands of hands of history with him stored on a database, how could he know if the hero is in balance? The answer is that this strategy is predictable. The villain can see as clearly as the hero which draws missed, and while he won't know that the hero will bet all those draws, he will recognize the hero's incentive to bet them. He might also recognize the ease with which the hero could fall into the trap of bluffing too often if he were to follow the common but incorrect shortcut described above. Or the villain might just be a fish. He may choose to call frequently on the river for reasons that have nothing to do with the hero, but that effectively exploit the hero all the same. With the proper thought process, you can construct a perfectly balanced betting range despite arriving at the river with many missed draws. It simply requires checking many of them. In fact, most situations call for playing similar types of hands in different ways. It is rarely correct to bet all your draws or check-raise all your strongest made hands. If you will have a checking range, some draws likely belong in it. If you will have a calling range, some strong hands likely belong in it. Thus, the question to ask is not how should I play my weak hands, but rather which weak hands play better as bets and which as checks. Once you frame the problem in this way, you are thinking in terms of range construction. So that again is from an article called Constructing Ranges that appears in the January 2020 magazine, uh, or edition of 2 Plus 2 magazine. And I'm now going to talk about some concepts and elaborate on some concepts from that article in the context of answering a question that we got from a listener named Jonathan. 
Jonathan sent us this hand from a 2-5 live uh, No Limit Hold'em game. Jonathan says, I have around $1,600. Villain has around $1,400. We are seven-handed. So this hand is starting out quite deep, nearly 300 big blinds effective. Under the gun player, and remember again, this is seven-handed, so this would really be like under the gun plus two at a nine-handed table. Uh, the first player to act raises the $20. Villain is on his immediate left, so under the gun plus three, uh, or, or low jack. Um, he makes it $65, and it folds around to the hero in the small blind with ace-king of clubs. I'm just going to read Jonathan's uh, entire email, or at least the parts that I excerpted from it, and then I'll come back and give my uh, thoughts once you've heard the whole hand. So here's in the small blind with ace-king of clubs. I four-bet to $150. Should I have made it bigger here? Maybe $224? Uh, sorry, maybe $220? I prefer four-betting to flatting out of position. I just think my sizing may have been too small. Under the gun folds, villain calls, pot $327 before rake. And the flop is four of clubs, nine of diamonds, three of hearts. Our hero again has ace king of clubs. Four of clubs, nine of diamonds, three of hearts, flop. There's $327 in the pot, probably about 320 after rake. And there's uh, 1250 remaining in the effective stack, so a stack to pot ratio of about four. Jonathan continues, I'm confused on what I should be doing on the flop here. I elected to check in real time. My thinking for checking is that my opponent's range is a lot of hands that will call, primarily queens, jacks, tens, sometimes ace, king, and kings, although I block these hands. If I see bet and the turn doesn't come a club, it feels a little bit punty to continue to barrel. I can very easily have aces and kings here. So maybe barreling with the intention to triple barrel even without a club is fine. It just feels uncomfortable if the pot is this bloated and the turn doesn't come a club. If I somehow knew the turn would be a club, I think I would just elect a triple barrel. So to summarize, c-betting the flop leaves me in a weird spot on a lot of turn cards, and I was uncomfortable with that. So I elected to check. The only bet's $100. Can't really fold. The hands that are ahead of me I'm drawing pretty live against. Plus I have the backdoor nut flush draw. Folding doesn't seem like a good option. Raising seems bad, too. I called. Turn is a six of clubs. So the board is four of clubs, nine of diamonds, three of hearts, six of clubs. Our hero holding ace king of clubs, about $500 in the pot. Again, I elect to check. This time, I was checking to check shove. I think villain has a lot of hands that really hate when I shove, especially if I can still have aces, which I can. If I get called, I'm hardly ever in any type of bad shape. I have a ton of outs. I'm only in bad shape against 9-9, that's unlikely for him. And even then I have outs. Opponent folding is also great for me. Check shoving seems solid. And if opponent checks back, that's fine too. I'm happy with the free card. I was comfortable with this check. Correct me if I'm wrong though. Villain checks back. Rivers and nine of spades. Final board, four of clubs, nine of diamonds, three of hearts, six of clubs, nine of spades. There's about $500 in the pot and 1200 or so, 1100 in the effective stacks. This is another point in the hand where I'm not confident in my decision. After villain checks back the turn, I wanted to attack. When he checked back, it felt kind of weak. It felt like queens or jacks. I wanted to be aggressive and try to make those hands fold. I thought about shoving, which is maybe correct. I elected about $350. I have literally no idea on the sizing and I'm on vacation, so I can't plug it into Pio. 
I thought that this was definitely the way I would play aces or kings, and villains could fold a smaller pairs here. I wanted villain to fold queens or jacks. Kings could even find a fold here, but I think kings 5 bets me some of the time pre-flop. Villain almost never has a 9, neither do I. So our hero bets $350, villain shoves, our hero folds. Jonathan asks, is check shoving the river a bad play? Could I check shove the river for value with aces? What hand can he reasonably call a river shove with? Kings being one of his best hands, and that feels like a very loose call. I think a big part of the issue here is my unfamiliarity in 4-bet pots, which left me in a weird spot on the flop. I will be doing some 4-bet study after this hand. Thanks and happy podcasting, Jonathan. Okay, so let's start with the idea of what's special about 4-bet pots. Jonathan says a part of the issue is an unfamiliarity in 4-bet pots. From a range construction perspective, um, there's nothing magical about 4-bet or or 3-bet pots. uh, And, you know, like a a PioSolver kind of tool doesn't actually care. I mean, when you do a flop solve on PioSolver, it doesn't care how you got to the current situation. Um, All that matters from PioSolver's perspective is the starting ranges and the size of the pot and the money remaining in the stack. So the stack to pot ratio and and starting ranges and, and the flop are the variables that PioSolver is taking into consideration. Uh, the preflop action determines the ranges that the players start with, of course. So in that way, it's relevant. But the um, the actual flop process here, in terms of how you should like, I, I guess what, what's going to be um, specific to four bet pots is a low stack to pot ratio. Although in this case, since we started with you know three hundred big blinds, we actually still have a stack to pot ratio of four on the flop, which is similar to what we might see in a three bet pot with one hundred big blind stacks. So the the low SPR by itself isn't. Um, or the SPR by itself isn't that specific to a four-bet pot. And then the other thing that we're seeing here is narrow ranges. Um, so because this is a four-bet pot, and especially because it involves a cold four-bet, right? not a four-bet from the original Razor, but a, a cold four-bet, um, both players' ranges are going to be pretty narrow. Now, that actually should make the hand a little bit easier to analyze. right? There's, there's fewer possibilities we have to consider for both ourselves and for the villain, and it makes it a little easier to kind of think about what our what our range is going to be doing in this spot, because our range just isn't that large. Um, when when you have a very wide range, you generally have to think about, you're, you're going to have like different types of hands in your range that might have conflicting goals, and you have to think about how you're going to negotiate between those things. Um, here, I think it, like there's just not that many different hands <laughs> that the hero and the villain can have, and so it's a little easier to talk about what each player should be trying to accomplish. So hopefully when you see the way that I'm thinking and talking about this hand, it'll help you to, to better appreciate the, the range construction process. Um, I do think that Jonathan falls into the trap that I described in um, the passage that I quoted from my article, which is, I think he kind of jumps back and forth between trying to think about how should I play this specific hand versus just trying to make predictions about what the opponent's going to do. So like when, once we get to the river, he just kind of says, well, you know, I think villain's weak, so should I bluff? And his arguments for bluffing really have nothing to do with his holding ace-king as opposed to some other weak hand that he might hold in this situation. Maybe the unstated premise is that there's no other weak hand he could have here except for ace-king, um, which which is possible. But I think we want to talk more... Like So all these questions about like whether or not villain should fold kings on the river... Um, I mean, if villain can never really have a hand stronger than kings, which I'm not 
sure is true. There's just like there's a lot of uh, assumptions going on here that, that aren't really made explicit. Um, but I, I think we want to. This is going to be a good opportunity for us to to practice thinking in in terms of of range construction and how we're going to want to play different types of hands and maybe also how the villain or at least like what kinds of hands we're going to want to give the villain difficult decisions with um i guess we'll start with preflop so the action preflop is we have an early position player opening to 20 we have the villain three betting to 65 he's also in early position and then our hero is in the small blind with ace king suited I'm not as com- uh, as like familiar with your multi-way or pre-flop um, game theory. I think it's very likely that this is a mix in theory, um, that our hero is supposed to sometimes call and sometimes format with ace-king suited. I do think that hero's choice of format size is pretty good, and I don't think hero is probably supposed to format real large in this situation. So let me say a little bit about that, about why um, a small a small raise, relatively small, this is a villain made at 65, hero made at 150. Um, I, and I don't think raising to like 220, as Jonathan suggested, would be better. So let me talk a little bit about why I think a small raise size is, is going to be appropriate here. And a lot of it has to do with what we're looking to accomplish with, with this raise and also some of the constraints that are on us. So the, the, the big constraint for the hero is that there's already two players with very strong ranges in this pot. There's a player who opened under the gun at a seven-handed table, and he needs a relatively strong hand to do that. And then there's a player who three-bet, also from early position, against an under-the-gun open, and he needs an extremely strong hand to do that. So both of these players have like pretty narrow ranges already. You know, even even like a, a somewhat loose opening range for for the original razor is going to be like twenty five ish percent of hands, and then you know the three betting range. Again, this is like generous, like maybe ten percent of hands. Um, probably probably both of those ranges are a little narrower than that. So by the time it gets back around to hero, and now hero has to put money in. With the risk of, I mean, A, the big blind who still hasn't acted, and you know, every once in a while he's going to have aces, but more importantly, he's got two players with very strong ranges already in the pot. There's just not very many hands. Like It's not like our hero is getting any kind of good price. He's got $2 in the pot, and he has to put in another 63 if he wants to you know, do anything at all with this hand besides fold. So the hero is going to have to put in, like playing a hand here at all is going to require putting in a lot of money against two very strong ranges. And that means the hero just can't play many hands here, period. Um, there's a chance that like ace queen suited supposed to put some money in here. Ace queen offsuit probably isn't. Um, it's just it's only going to be like big pairs, ace king, and some like big suited hands this is going to be about all that that we can play in this situation. When we do raise again, we have to have an extremely strong range for doing it. Um, you know, aces clearly is a hand <laughs> they they can raise again, and they probably wants to raise again. So let's talk a little bit about what the hero's incentives would be if he if he had aces. Um, hero's going to be showing a lot of strength no matter what he does. I, I've, as I've you know, emphasized a few times, to put money in the pot, period, in this situation, the hero's going to be showing a lot of strength. So you can't really call and say, I'm disguising the strength of my hand by calling. Like You obviously have a pretty strong hand if you call here. I mean, it's probably going to look a little bit more like you have jacks or queens than like you have aces, but um, in terms of like what implications that actually has for post-flop play, like 
it's not like you're really showing a lot of weakness by telling your opponent like, oh, I only have pocket queens, I don't have pocket aces. Like you're still showing quite a lot of strength. Um, so I, you're going to show a lot of strength no matter what you do in this in this situation. Um, a big part of your incentive to raise again with aces actually is if you're going to show a lot of strength, you want to charge your opponents a little bit more money to see the flop, especially the original razor. If you were to just cold call here with aces or with any hand, you're giving the original razor a pretty good price to peel and see the flop, including with some hands that, I mean, you're never really in that bad shape with aces, but like, let's suppose this player has like pocket nines, you know, um, is it really in your interest for him to see the flop with pocket nines when you have pocket aces? If he's going to just go crazy with when he just has a pocket pair. I mean, he's not going to flop an over pair very often with nines anyway. But, I mean, if, if you believe he's just going to, like, lose his mind on an eight high flop and you know, still put in four times the pot, or it would be more than four times the pot if you just called, but, you know, just going to put in, like, a ton of money with nines, then, yeah, I guess you do want to call here and, and let him see the flop with nines. But I think that's pretty unlikely. Like, what's probably going to happen is the villain has nines is if you cold call, he's going to call, and then if he flops a set you're going to be in trouble because you're going to have trouble not putting in a lot of money <laughs> with aces. And um, if he doesn't flop a set, he's not really going to make a mistake. So even though you're going to be a big favorite on the pre-flop money that goes in, after the flop, um, you're going to have poor equity realization if you have aces and he has nines, right? You're, you're never really going to win money. It's reverse implied odds, basically. You're not going to win money from nines. You will sometimes lose money to nines. So giving, giving the uh, original Razor a real cheap price to see a flop, or even giving the player who made a 3-bet, you know, letting him see a flop for no additional investment, is not really in your interest when you have an extremely strong hand. It's also worth pointing out that hands like aces um, are not going to be the nuts after the flop very often. Even though they're the nuts pre-flop, these are really hands that benefit from making the pot larger pre-flop. They want to see the flop with a very low stack-to-pot ratio. Four is, uh, that's like kind of a sweet spot for for pocket aces. And with, with a stack-to-pot ratio of four, you can comfortably stack off with your hand on most flops. Um, in a three-way pot with a stack-to-pot ratio of like six or seven, it's going to be a lot dicier to stack off with aces after the flop on, on a lot of flops. So you don't really want to put yourself in that situation where you're out of position with a, an SPR that's a little higher than you want in a multi-way pot. That's not a situation where you make a lot of money with aces. So I think with your strongest hands, you would like to raise here. Now, the problem with only raising strong hands here is that, um, you know, like, suppose that your opponent knew that the only hand you would raise in this situation is aces, right? Even if they have hands as strong as queens or kings, they can just fold them to your format, right? They're not getting a good enough price to set mine, um, assuming that you can play okay after the flop. Uh, it's probably not going to be profitable for them to set mine. So if, if they knew that literally the only hand you would four bet here is aces, then you know they could just fold everything else. And same, you know, if you're only going to four bet aces and kings, then they could just fold queens and jacks when you four bet. So that's, I mean, a big part of the reason why we want to put money in here with ace-king in this situation is that we do want to four bet some hands that aren't aces or kings. You may remember if you've... Um, well, whether you've read Play Optimal Poker or you've just consumed other of my uh, poker strategy content, including listening to the show, a concept that I talk about a lot is targeting. Thinking about a specific hand or hands in your opponent's range that you're trying to present with a difficult decision. It's rare that you're targeting a hand as strong as like queens or jacks before the flop, but in this situation, I think you are. When you four bet, you're really you know trying to give your opponent difficult decisions with some pretty strong pocket pairs, and that's because of how much strength you're showing by four betting here at all. So when you're going to have 
you know, four bets that aren't aces or kings, the main reason why ace-king is the next most logical candidate, it's, you're not really four-betting ace-king for value. Like, you're not expecting to be in particularly good shape when the ace-king is, is called. Um, you're four-betting it because you want to generate folds from hands like pocket nines that under the gun might have, or you know, if under the gun has like queen jack suited, you're very happy to get a fold from that hand. Um, and because you, even if you don't get a fold from a hand like tens or jacks or queens pre-flop, um, you may be setting yourself up to bluff those hands out after the flop as the villain is contemplating doing in this hand. So why is ace-king a good choice for this play? Um, one really important factor is that it blocks aces and kings and ace-king. So in terms of hands that are definitely not going to fold to your four bet, three major candidates are aces, kings, and ace-king. So just blocking those right away increases the likelihood that you're going to get folds either before or after the flop when you four-bet ace-king. You're just going to run into a strong hand less often than if you made the same play with like seven deuce offsuit. Now, obviously ace-king has other advantages besides that, but one big advantage of ace-king is blocking those very strong hands. The other thing ace-king has going for it is that when you four-bet with ace-king, and if you do get called by queens or jacks or tens, you also have perfectly fine equity against those hands. <laughs> like, uh, now, if you're going to fold to a 5-bet and your opponent would 5-bet queens or jacks, then it, it's a little dicier to 4-bet ace-king here. Um, I think a lot of people aren't going to 5-bet queens or jacks, and there's some good reasons why they wouldn't 5-bet queens or jacks, because you could also have aces or kings in this situation. Like, the fact that you have those stronger hands in your range both gives your opponent incentive to fold some hands that you want them to fold, and also gives them incentive not to 5-bet some hands you don't want them to 5-bet. So ace-king is, is a pretty sweet candidate for 4-betting. Um, there may be reasons for having a calling range in this situation. Also, I don't really want to get into that right now, but I definitely think, you know, four betting with ace-king is a reasonable thing to do. Ace-king suited, certainly a fine candidate for it. Ace-king offsuit could be a candidate also. Um, I mean, ace-king suited's going to be a higher value four bet. It's also going to be a higher value call. So if you're thinking about, like, there's no reason why you would ever four bet ace-king off and fold ace-king suited. But if you're going to have both a four betting and a calling range, there could be reasons why you sometimes call ace-king suited and sometimes four-bet ace-king offsuit. But that's getting a little beyond where I want to be right now. Um, so you know, ace-king is, is definitely a four-betting candidate. And in terms of how we're going to put a difficult decision to a hand like queens or jacks, um, I don't think it really takes a large raise to accomplish that. Um, if our four-betting range here is exactly aces, kings, and ace-king, and it probably shouldn't be quite that narrow, but suppose for a second that it is. What we're basically doing is playing a polarized range against the condensed range, which is a situation you may recognize from play optimal poker or other places. Um, you know, we either are bluffing with ace-king or we're betting for value with aces or kings and the villain is stuck with a hand that is ahead of the bluffs and losing to the value bets. And if you know anything about multi-street game theory in these situations, you generally do best... Now, if you're only making one bet with a polarized range, you want to make that bet as large as you can. If you're going to have opportunities to make multiple bets, you generally want to break those bets out over multiple streets. Rather than just betting four times the pot on one street, you'd rather make two pot-sized bets, for instance. And if you had room to make three bets, you'd rather make even smaller bets so that you can get in uh, three bets over the course of the entire hand. So um, that, that's a concept that's sometimes called leverage. It's a whole chapter about leverage in Play Optimal Poker 2. But the basic idea is that the fact that you're going to be able to bet a polarized range on later streets 
allows you to do an extra amount of bluffing on the current street. And even though your opponent's getting a really good price on the current street to call, that price is not his final price for seeing a showdown. And he has to take into consideration when considering whether or not to call you know, preflop with a hand like pocket tens or pocket jacks, that he's gonna have trouble realizing his equity. In other words, even if he is, you know, quote, correct, that he's ahead preflop because you just have ace-king, um, he may not win the pot even when his tens are the best hand, right? If you four-bet preflop and then bet the flop and shove the turn, it's not going to be a real high-value proposition for him to, like, call you all the way down with tens um, because he has to worry about you possibly having aces or kings. So even though he's getting a great immediate price with tens if you make a small four bet, it's still not trivial for him to call with tens because he has to worry about how well his hand is going to realize equity if you continue barreling. So you, it doesn't take a large raise to give him a tough decision. And in fact, a large raise would not give him a tough decision. If you were to four bet to like $300 here, um, I think even two, 220 like the hero suggests is too much. Um, if you were to, to four bet to such a large size, I think you're not giving him a decision anymore. You're making it trivial for him to fold a hand like tens or jacks. And you might think, well, okay, great, I want him to fold tens or jacks when I have ace-king. Okay, but you don't always have ace-king here. <laughs> Sometimes you have aces or kings and you don't want him to fold tens or jacks. Also, he doesn't always have tens or jacks. Sometimes he has aces or kings, and given that you are essentially bluffing with ace-king, you'd rather put less money in the pot um, so that you lose less when you do run into a strong hand. It's like you kind of want to risk the smallest amount that you have to risk in order to give him a tough decision with the hands that he could actually fold while minimizing your potential losses to the hands that he's never going to fold. And honestly, even if he has jacks or tens, it's not necessarily best for you if he folds pre-flop. If you're going to successfully um, bluff him off of those hands pretty often after the flop, it may be better for you if he calls jacks or tens pre-flop and then just ends up folding them after the flop. Or, as should happen in equilibrium, you may be indifferent to whether he calls with jacks or tens pre-flop. So it might be that he realizes, I mean, if, if, you, if you play your range perfectly, he should end up realizing roughly zero equity with the hands that you're targeting. And that makes him indifferent to calling or folding pre-flop, and you're also indifferent to whether or not he calls or folds pre-flop. Remember also that one of the reasons why we're four-betting pre-flop is to shut the small blind down, right? We would rather play this pot heads up with our reign, whether it's ace-king or aces. We'd rather play this pot heads up against the um, the three-better rather than let the small blind come in for a really good price. So even if we knew that the three-better were never going to fold to this four-bet, there's still value in the four-bet. There's still fold equity to the four-bet because we're getting fold equity from the small blind. We're causing the small blind to fold his equity share in the pot, and that can be good for both us and the three better, right? We don't have to be pushing an equity advantage against the three better. We don't have to be generating uh, fold equity against the three better because we are pushing an equity advantage and generating fold equity against the original razor. That's something to consider in, in multi-way pots is that even if you don't have fold equity against the betting player, fold equity against other players in the pot is also valuable. And finally, we're going to have, um, I guess I mentioned this in passing already, but we're going to have the stack to pot ratio that we want, whether it's aces or ace king, um, with a four bet of this size. So if we were much deeper, if we're playing like 
five or six thousand dollars deep, you probably would want a larger format here. You'd want a format size that enables you to have a stack to pie ratio of about four after the flop, because that's what you want, whether you have aces or ace king. Um, why do you want it with ace king? The same reason you want it with aces. If you do get an ace or a king high board, you want to be able to treat your hand as the knights, and you can do that with a low stack to pie ratio. You can't do that if the stack to pie ratio is six or seven. Um, you also want to be able to you know, play a draw as like bet flop shove turn or bet flop call a shove or check raise all in on the flop when you have a strong draw which ace king suited will relatively often give you you know a, a nut flush draw with two over cards when you have a draw like that it really behooves you to get the money in before the river and a lower stack to buy ratio makes it easier and more profitable for you to do that so the fact that even a small four bet here is still going to give us a low stack to pot ratio on the flop is another reason to use a small four bet size So that's preflop. <laughs> we four bet with ace king suited. The original razor folds the three better calls. And now we're heads up to the flop. We're holding ace king suited. We've put in the, the uh, fourth raise preflop. So we certainly have hands like aces and kings in our range. And the flop is nine, four, three rainbow with one of our suit. The question is, should we be betting with so I, I think one important consideration is our choice is not really just between betting and checking. We need to think about how the entire hand is going to play out. And I think Jonathan falls into a bit of a trap here when he says, well, I, I think hands like queens and jacks and tens aren't folded into a flop bet, so I guess I shouldn't bet the flop. Well, betting the flop is only part of a multi-street decision-making process. Um, if you're going to be able to bet flop shove turn and those hands might call flop and fold turn then that could be a reason for betting the flop you don't necessarily need him to fold those hands on the flop you're also making an assumption that he's not going to fold those hands on the flop now you might be comfortable making that assumption but i would say if our range here is aces kings and sometimes ace king he's going to be roughly indifferent in theory to calling with hands like tens and jacks and queens so now you have that classic dilemma which i talk a lot about in play optimal poker, which is, are you going to try to make an assumption about what your opponent is going to do? Do you want to say, I'm sure he won't fold queens or jacks to tens? Or do I want to say, I don't know what he's going to do with queens, jacks, tens, and I just want to play a strategy that gives him a tough decision with those hands. If you want to make assumptions about what he's going to do, then it shouldn't be too hard to figure out the best strategy, but you should think about more than just what he's going to do on the flop. So... If you think, well, he's definitely going to call the flop, but I don't know what he's going to do on the turn, I think that's still an argument for having a balanced barreling range. Um, if you say he's never going to fold an overpair, then maybe it doesn't make sense to bet the flop. Um, if you think that he's always going to call flop, fold, turn, then it makes a lot of sense to bet the flop. If you don't know what he's going to do, which it kind of seems like is actually the situation Jonathan's in, then that's where thinking in terms of game theory and range construction is useful. So that's the situation I'm going to focus on is, you know, we think there's a good chance, or at least the, the hands in his range that we want to target are like queens, jacks, tens. He might have other stuff in his range. He could have slow played aces or kings. We know that we're blocking those hands. We know that he had some incentive to five bet them pre-flop, um, but it's possible that he has them. But, you know, we're not really going to worry about those, those cases. Uh, those are... They limit how much, like, bluffing or value betting we can do in this situation, but they're a small enough part of his range that if we can play our hand profitably, like it's, it's okay that there's some part of our range that there's some part of the villain's range that he's never folding. Um, which, you know, definitely should be the case if he has 
aces or I would say kings. Um, as long as there's a part of his range that we can present with a difficult decision, and that is a big enough part of his range that, you know, given given what we're risking, it's not trivial for him to just only call the times that he has aces or kings, and he can just trivially fold everything else. If we choose bet sizing that enables him to only continue when he has aces or kings and profitably fold everything else, then we've made a mistake. We haven't given him a difficult decision anymore. So we want to try to find a strategy that's going to present him with a difficult decision when he has those medium-sized overpairs, the tens of the jacks of the queens. How are we going to do that? What would we want to do here if we actually had aces? Now let's let's think about the other part of our range. If we actually had aces, what would we want to do? There's a number of ways we could put all the money in the pot. We could just go all in immediately. We could make a pot size bet on the flop and then go all in for pot on the turn. There's With a stack to pot ratio of four, you basically have two pot size bets in the stacks. Um, now you could make smaller bet. You could bet like half pot on all three streets. That might be enough to get all the money in, or you know somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so you could try to split the betting over three streets. You could try to split it over two streets. You could just go all in on the flop for four times the pot. You could try to check raise the flop, or check raise the turn, or check the flop and then pot the turn, pot the river. Lots of different options. A good thing to consider is, and this is another concept from Play Optimal Poker, is which player is better equipped to bet a polarized range. Right? Generally, the player with the polarized range is the one who benefits from making the pot larger, and the player with the more condensed range is the one who benefits from pot control. So in this situation, you should be the player with the more polarized range. In the extreme case, where, I mean, let's just pretend, Let, let's let's forget about for a second about even the possibility that the villain has aces or kings. Let's just pretend hero's range is exactly ace-king, um, all the different, you know, he had some, some mix of all the different combinations of ace-king he could have. So sometimes clubs, sometimes spades, sometimes hearts, sometimes offsuit. Hero has lots of different combinations of ace-king, and then he has all the combinations of aces and kings. And the villain just has some mix of queens, jacks, tens. Let's just pretend we have these, like, they're still not perfectly polarized ranges because these hands can improve. Like, queens, jacks, tens could become, they could turn a river a set. Ace, king could turn a river a pair. So these ranges aren't perfectly polarized, but they're much closer to polarized if we um, if, if we start from that that assumption. So if we, if we just pretend the, those are the ranges... It should be pretty clear that the hero is the one who ought to be driving the betting. Villain actually has very little incentive to bet with queens or jacks or tens. He has some incentive to bet because he would like to protect against ace-king getting there. So this isn't quite the ace-king-queen game from Play Optimal Poker, because in the ace-king-queen game, if the, uh, if, if the, the player with the polarized range has a queen, he can never win the pot at showdown. He has no chance of improving his hand. In this case, the hero's bluffs do have a chance of improving, and that's a really important difference, um, which is this is a big part of what Play Optimal Poker 2 is about, is how to handle these more like real-world scenarios where ranges aren't perfectly polarized and you do have to consider the idea of protecting your hand. So the villain would have some incentive to bet in order to uh, deny equity to the ace-king that's in the hero's range or to, you know, get in value bets against the ace-king that that's in the hero's range. However, he has to weigh that, his interest in protecting his hand against the risk of betting into a hand against which he is drawing very slim. And it's important to recognize from the opponent's perspective that the value of making ace-king fold is not commensurate with the value of betting into pocket kings. So if the, if the villain bets and causes ace-king to fold, 
he's causing the hero to fold about 25% of the pot. That's about hero's chance of improving to win if he has ace-king. Like, if we just checked it all the way to, to the river, ace-king would beat queens about 25% of the time here. Um, if the villain bets queens and gets called by kings or aces, he's going to lose that bet about 95% of the time, right? His, his chances of, or maybe somewhere between 90 and 95% of the time. So, um, the, the cost of betting into better hands is pretty large, and the value of making ace-king fold is is not huge. So there, there is a sort of uh, some weighing that the villain has to do. Now, if we always check ace-king and we never check aces or kings, then the play is clear for the villain. He should bet the queens of the jacks or tens because he's always ahead with them. He doesn't have the risk anymore of running into strong hands. So if we're going to check some ace-king, we either have to accept that we're not presenting villain any kind of difficult decision with our checking range, or else we also have to be checking some strong hands sometimes. But generally, as the player with the polarized range, we want to be the ones doing the, the, the pot building. Villain has a lot of incentive to play pot control. If he's holding queens or jacks or tens, he you know, if he's not going to make the exploitative assumption that we never check aces or kings, then his strong incentive when we check is mostly just to play pot control and to say, I'm going to try to get closer to showdown and or see a free card you know if i hit my miracle set that'd be great but either way like getting close to showdown is a lot better for me than for instance facing a check raise from a polarized range right it's really bad for the villain if he bets with a hand like queens or jacks and then we check raise all in which is something that the hero contemplated doing right so i mean that that's one of the other liabilities of the villain betting is um even though he has there's some interest in him betting into ace king because it's good for him if ace king calls or folds it might be bad for him if Ace King check raises, right? If if he if a check raise is going to present him with a difficult decision, that's another potential liability of betting. So the villain really doesn't have that much incentive to bet if we check to him. Um, if we bet, he has some incentive to call and some incentive to fold. So basically, by betting, we present him with a difficult decision in a way that checking does not. If we check, I think the play for him is is it's most likely correct that he should just be checking behind with those hands. Now, if you think he's not going to do that, that again is a separate thing. Like if you think you can exploit him, that you can check and he's going to misinterpret what it means that you check and he's going to be too willing to bet hands like tens and jacks and queens and he's going to open himself up to a check raise and then he's going to play badly when he does get check raised. Um, or you can at least check raise a, a balanced and polarized range. That could be a reason to go for a check raise. But then again, we're going down an exploitative path. I think if the villain properly recognizes his incentives, his incentive is pretty strongly to check back when you check the flop. So that means you don't really have a lot of, have a lot of incentive to check the flop. If you have aces or kings, you don't want to let him play pot control and take a free card. You want to try to force him to put more money in the pot. And if you have ace-king, you also don't really want to let him play pot control. Because when you have ace-king, your number one, I mean, yeah, seeing a free card is nice for you when you have ace-king, but it's not as nice as getting a fold. You know, if, if you can deny villain equity by betting a polarized range on the flop, that's a really good thing for you. You don't have to be able to predict that he's going to fold. Just betting a polarized range is already making you money. So betting a polarized range on the flop is a nice thing to be able to do. And I think that's generally what the hero should be doing. We want to be betting most of the time that we have uh, nutty hands, in this case aces or kings, and we need to balance those bets with bluffs. Exactly how much bluffing we get to do with Ace-King is um, kind of a complicated problem. There 
is some math related to this. It gets more complicated because, again, the issue of hands changing value. But let's just suppose that we're not, we can't bet every single combination of ace-king. So we're not always going to be able to bet ace-king. We have to do some choosing among the different combinations of ace-king that we have to decide which one should we bluff with and which one should we check. And maybe we're just going to decide that when we check, we are mostly giving up on the pot. Like that we're just gonna we're gonna fold now obviously that's not what the hero actually did and i think it's worth considering like if if checking is not just going to mean check folding for you checking is going to mean calling which is what you know and i'm not sure that there was this plan on jonathan's part i'm not sure that jonathan really said i'm going to check and call a bet it seems like he just said i'm going to check because i don't want to bet and then the villain bet and then he was like oh well i guess i can't fold so i'm going to call like i think it's better to decide if i'm going to put money in the pot would i rather do it by betting or by checking and calling so let's assume that when we check it's going to mean you know, giving up on the pot which combinations of ace king should we bet and which should we check with the intention of giving up one thing that I think is um, is clearly correct, I, I started to say obvious, but it, maybe it's not obvious to everyone. Betting when you have a backdoor flush draw is going to be better than not. So you can never have a stronger draw than that. If you're only bluffs or ace-king, you're never going to have a stronger draw than two over cards plus a backdoor flush draw. On this flop, there's no way for you to have any other draw than that. So the, the, the ace-king combinations that have a backdoor flush draw are going to be a little bit more valuable than the ones that don't. Um, if you're really concerned about also balancing your checking range, you probably need to have some combinations of the backdoor flush draw also in your checking range. But I, again, I kind of want to ignore that part of the game tree right now and just say, like, let's just assume we're going to lose the pot every time we check. We're either going to bet a polarized range or we're going to check and give up. In that situation, then, there would be no reason to bet an ace-king without a backdoor flush draw and check one that has a backdoor flush draw unless... Yeah, there'd be no reason to play a strategy like that. The only reason we'd ever check ace-king with a backdoor flush draw is if we thought that even three combinations of ace-king was too many for bluffs. And I think that's not going to be the situation here. So I think when we have ace-king with a backdoor flush draw, it's going to be a pretty appealing flop bet. And you know, Jonathan's concern was, I don't want to bet the flop. Like It, it feels, uh, I forget his word, spewy maybe, or, or um, blasty <laughs> to, uh, to just like barrel off if he doesn't turn a club. For one thing, what about when you do turn a club, right? Like, that's going to happen sometimes. Um, and two, I mean, the implication of that, I guess, would be is, I mean, are you just never bluffing the flop then? Like, I think unless you have some other hand in your four betting range besides ace-king that's going to constitute your flop bluff, like, you're never going to have a better bluffing hand than ace-king suited, so that would kind of imply that you're never bluffing. And this is why I think rather than just trying to assess, like, trying to, like, guess whether or not you think the villain is going to fold, which is, I think, is sort of what Jonathan is doing on the flop, but he doesn't really seem that confident in the guesses that he's making, I think you're better off just trying to build a range and say, okay, I know I want to bet my value hands. I want to bet aces. I want to bet kings because I want to deny the villain the opportunity to pot control. I want to present him with difficult decisions with his queens and his jacks and his tens. And in order to make it not trivial for him to fold the queens and jacks and the tens, um, or in order to profit from the fact that he has some incentive to fold queens and jacks and tens, I also want to bluff sometimes when I have ace king. And it should be pretty clear that the ace king with a backdoor flush draw is a better candidate than the ace king without a backdoor flush draw. So, the fact that like you're not necessarily going to be able to profitably bluff every turn is not a reason to not bet the flop. So in theory, you're supposed to have two ranges here. Um, maybe maybe three, depending on whether you're going to bet across three streets. But let's further simplify this problem by saying, 
Um, if we have aces or kings, we're going to bet flop shove turn, no matter what. We're just always going to bet flop shove. No matter what the turn card is, we're going to bet flop shove turn. Um, and when we have ace king, we need to do. I guess really we need to have three different ranges with, with ace king. We need to have a range that just checks and gives up immediately on the flop. We need to have a range that bets flop and shoves turn. And then we also need to have a range that bets flop and then checks turn and gives up. And this is because we need to make the villain indifferent between three different plays. So in, in the original play Optimal Poker, when I talk about polarized versus condensed ranges, um, our focus is on making the villain indifferent between calling and folding with his bluff catchers. In a multi-street situation, it's more complicated than that because the villain really has three choices. His choices when he has pocket queens are fold immediately on the flop, call the flop, fold the turn, or call the flop, call the turn. He has three different options. And the equilibrium strategy is going to make him indifferent between all three of those options. This again gets a little bit complicated by the fact that like sometimes the turn is an ace or a king and his decision is easier. Sometimes the turn is a queen or a jack or a ten and he sometimes turns a set. Um, those things do complicate this problem a little bit, but we can sort of set those aside for the, the time being because it's a little easier to envision the theory if we don't worry about those edge cases, even though they're not really that edgy. But um, the, the basic idea is that we want to have a uh, th we want to have three different ranges um, with, with with our bluffs or with our weak hands. One that just gives up immediately, one that bets flop and then gives up turn, and one that goes all the way, that bets flop and shoves turn. So we've already decided that um, ace-king with a backdoor flush draw I think never belongs in the check-give-up-flop range. If we have ace-king with no backdoor flush draw, that's always going to be a better candidate for check immediately and check-give-up-flop immediately. So then it just becomes a question of... Um, we definitely want to bet the flop when we have ace-king with a backdoor flush draw because the villain has some incentive to just fold immediately with, with queens or jacks or tens. And then... If he doesn't fold immediately, we'll just have to make another decision on the turn about whether or not to shove. The really nice thing about betting ace-king with a backdoor flush draw is we will turn a flush draw sometimes, and when we do, we're going to have a clearly, like, shoving is just going to be like a very, you know, easy, natural, probably profitable thing to do. Um, so, you know, knowing that we can sometimes turn a draw and then get a profitable turn shove is a big part of what makes bluffing the flop profitable with ace-king suited. So on three quarters of turns, if, if our flop bluffing range is just the three combinations of ace-king that have backdoor flush draws, on three out of four turns, we're going to pick up a flush draw. And when that happens, we're going to have at least one very obvious bluffing candidate. Um, now, it might be that we sometimes want to bluff even without a backdoor flush draw, and that's likely to just be, you know, we're indifferent between betting or checking. Like, what should probably happen on a club turn or, or any other turn that puts up a flush draw, we're going to have one combination of ace-king with the draw, and that's going to be a profitable bluff. And then our other ace-kings, we're going to be indifferent between betting or checking. That's what should happen in, in theory, I think. Um, and then if the turn doesn't put up a, a, a flush draw, then we're probably just indifferent between betting and checking with all of those hands. Um, and betting should be or bluffing should be approximately zero ev and you can either try to guess whether you think the villain is going to call or fold or you can just um randomize <laughs> randomize what you do in uh, in the same way that you would in any other polarized versus condensed situation so 
I mean, th- that's kind of how I would think through constructing the, the flop range is to not not to just immediately try to guess, oh, villain's obviously never folding an overpair on the flop and therefore I shouldn't bet. But rather, I want to present villain with a difficult decision with his overpairs. I want to set myself up to have a balanced turn bluffing range. Um, I know I'm going to check and give up some hands on the flop. I'm also going to bluff some hands. So the question isn't, should I bluff when I have ace-king? It's, which combinations of ace-king should I bluff and which combinations should I check? And once you frame it that way, I think it's pretty clear to see that the the ace-king with a backdoor flush draw definitely belongs in your flop bluffing range, even though that means you will have some tough decisions with it on the turn. Right? When, when you do turn a flush draw, you'll have a clear decision to shove. Um, the tough decisions are inevitable. No matter what hand you bluff with on the flop, you're always going to have to t- a tough decision on the turn. If you don't pick up, you know, some really strong draw, you're always going to have a tough decision on the turn um, between betting or, or checking. So that by itself is not an argument against betting the flop. You, I mean, poker is about tough decisions. So you can't just say, well, I'm not really going to know what to do on the turn if I bet the flop and he calls. I mean, yeah, it's bad for you if that happens. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people fall into this trap of, making a lot of worst case scenario or like only thinking about the worst case scenario. So when we're betting the flop with ace king suited, a lot of good things could happen. One is he might just fold immediately and we win the pot and that's really good. Two is if he does call, maybe we turn a flush draw and we get a profitable shove. Three is we bet he calls, we turn an ace or a king and that's profitable. And then, you know, the unprofitable case is when three things go wrong. When he doesn't fold the flop and we don't turn a flush draw and we don't turn a pair. And it's just like, well, if three things go wrong, then yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe you maybe you don't win the pot. Like sometimes you get unlucky in poker. Like sometimes you have pocket kings before the flop and an ace comes on the flop. Like it doesn't mean you made a mistake with the kings. It just means like sometimes things don't go your way. And when enough things don't go your way, then you know, sometimes you lose money. <laughs> I think you're sort of betting and there's a lot of good things that could happen when you bet with ace king suited, and that's literally what you're betting on. You're betting on all those good things. So just picking out the like the the even if it's not that uncommon of a case, just picking out one case where everything goes wrong and then saying, well, I don't like that branch of the game tree, so I guess I won't bet the flop, is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously simplifying Jonathan's decision-making process here, but uh, I mean, that that's the trap that a lot of people fall into, and I do see Jonathan kind of waffling at that point. So, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm not that interested in the question of like, having checked the flop what then should i do on the turn because um, i kind of think you just shouldn't be checking the flop in the first place and it's and like i also think you shouldn't really be checking the flop with aces or kings so it's kind of hard to then say like i mean the answer to what you should do with this hand on on the turn is probably you should do whatever you would do with aces or kings on the turn and the problem is you shouldn't really get to the turn with aces or kings so i think to to talk about the turner river play in this situation well actually there's something i want to say about the river but the turn play i mean i'm just gonna make the uh (laughs) the the modern era cop-out answer so like the old school cop-out error was just to say it depends right you you know anytime someone asked you a tricky question about you say well it depends you know which is sort of trivial um and now the the uh, the the modern cop-out is just to say it's a mix but I do think with this hand, it's probably a mix on the turn. Like you're probably supposed to sometimes bet and sometimes check raise, or you know maybe even sometimes check call. Like it's probably supposed to be a mix. Um, but also you probably made a mistake to get to this node in the first place. The river is a little bit more interesting. Um, 
because I think again, Jonathan falls into that trap of of just saying, "Well, you know, villain has clearly shown some weakness, so should I bluff?" And assuming that you're supposed to get to this note of the game tree with hands that could value bet at all, which I'm not sure is true, but if if you are, then there's still the question: It's not should I bluff yes or no; it's which hand should I bluff with? And the two questions that you want to ask yourself on the river is: um, Does my hand have any chance of winning without bluffing? And are my blockers helping or hurting me? Or are my blockers doing doing anything for me at all? I don't think it's actually, I mean, given how the action has gone down, it doesn't seem impossible to me that Ace-King is good, and you know, maybe we win sometimes just by going check-check on the river. And if that's ever true, then you know we may not want to bluff in this situation just because like, if bluffing is zero EV, which it's probably supposed to be in theory. If, if bluffing is zero EV and checking is plus EV, then checking is what we should do every single time. Um, assuming that we have some other, like there's some other hand that we might four bet besides Ace-King that could be a bluffing candidate on this river, then we'd have to choose, you know, would we rather bluff with Ace-King or with that other hand, or should we mix the two of them? And the way to make a decision like that is to think about what are you blocking with Ace-King? You're blocking Aces and you're blocking Kings in a four-bet pot, and, and you're blocking ace-king. Um, so in, in a four-bet pot, anyway, that's what you're blocking. In, in in situations where ranges are wider, you might be blocking a lot of other stuff. But in a four-bet pot, like, you're mostly blocking aces, kings, and ace-king. Um, is blocking aces or kings helpful? I don't know that it is, actually. I think if Villain had aces or kings, he had a lot of incentive to put money in the pot with them before now. Even if he didn't five-bet them pre-flop, he had a lot of incentive to bet the flop or to bet the turn. So ace-king might just not be the hand that we're worried about blocking on the river. It might be that on the river, his strongest hand is, like, queens. Like, maybe queens is the hand that just never falls to the river if that's the very top of his range, and the, the hands that are going to have a decision if we bet the river might be, like, jacks or tens. So in that case, um, queens is what we'd want to block, not some hand that is is never in his range blocking ace blocking aces or kings doesn't help us if aces or kings is never in his range if ace king is a hand that would fold to a river bet then blocking ace king is actively bad for us um we'd rather like if we could instead have like king queen suited here um we'd rather we'd rather bluff with king queen because then we block pocket queens we don't block as much ace king anyway so if we had a choice between ace king or king queen king queen would be the the better bluffing candidate that's how you should make a river bluffing decision if you're trying to do it in a balanced sort of way i mean the alternative again is just to say um I mean, you can just try to guess whether he's going to fold. And I feel like that's kind of what Jonathan's asking me to do. Like, he's like, well, I think he's probably weak. Should I bluff? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know how to tell you, uh, you know, w- whether he's going to uh, call or, or fold. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, wh- what I can give you is, is the thought process and the idea that with your polarized range, you probably should have taken advantage of leverage and taking advantage of the fact that you, as the player with the polarized range, or the player has the incentive to build a pot and put pressure on his medium-strength hands on earlier streets, and you probably should have bet an earlier street. Uh, the good news is that I have a book in the works that is going to help you um, master this thought process, better understand this thought process, and better understand how to make these kinds of decisions and do this kind of range construction in real time. Um, and that should be available hopefully May 2020. And hopefully by then I'll have a better title than Play Optimal Poker 2, Play Optimaler. But until then, I encourage you to play Optimaler. 
If you are interested in picking up the original Play Optimal Poker, um, the paper book is only available through Amazon.com. Uh, if you want an ebook, there's a couple different options for that. Uh, you can get the Kindle book, you know, magically delivered to your Kindle via WhisperNet, the way Amazon does it. If you buy through Amazon, um, you can also buy the ebook version at Nitcast.com, www.nitcast.com. And if you buy the ebook there, you will get three different formats. You'll get uh, EPUB, PDF, and Mobi, which is the or uh, AZW, which is the Kindle file format. Um, you do have to put the file, you have to transfer it manually to the Kindle if you do it that way. Not actually a big deal, but um, FYI. So if you want an uh, electronic format other than Kindle, NickCast is the only place to get it. If you want uh, paper format, Amazon is the only place to get it. And if you want Kindle, you can get it from either place. Um, there's lots of other stuff available at nickcast.com. There's some other books that I've written, which are trip reports from the World Series of Poker. There's two books that Nate wrote with some contribution from myself and a few other uh, thinking poker luminaries. There are some premium podcast series that Nate and I have put together. Um, so lots of good stuff available there at nickcast.com in addition to the book. And if you would like to hear a hand of yours discussed on the show the way Jonathan's was, you can send it to us podcast at thinkingpoker.net. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, we will be back with a guest next week. The devotion of a car, the light of the fair passage of a bill.